Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to tonight's virtual Commonwealth Club of California program. My name is Lauren Sanders, and I am happy to be moderating today's program. I've got here my dictionary. I've got my Google. I got my water. I got my blotting cloth in case we all break out into a sweat (laughs) based on what Dr. Dyson will be sharing with us. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you this evening, Dr. Professor and Minister Michael Eric Dyson, Distinguished University Press Professor, I should say, of African-American and Diaspora Studies, College of Arts and Science and of Ethics and Society, Divinity School and NEH Centennial Chair at Vanderbilt University and author for the 24th time with his new book, Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America. For more than 30 years, Dr. Dyson has played a prominent role in the nation as a public intellectual, university professor, cultural critic, social activist, and ordained Baptist minister. Now, in this latest installation, Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America, he dives into how Black people were forced to entertain white people during enslavement, have been forced to entertain the idea of race from the start and must find entertaining ways to make race an object of national conversation. We'll be discussing a lot in this next hour, and I want to ask Dr. Dyson's questions. I want to put questions to him from you. So if you are watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to those questions for you later in the program. It is thrilling to be here with you, talking with you, Dr. Dyson. There's a real appreciation really from my heart for your written and oral record of the Black experience and for your efforts to really quantify and capture the experiences, thoughts, viewpoints, hearts of Black people for the purpose of moving us closer to justice and equality. Hats off to you, Detroit style. I just got to start it out with a little Detroit. <laughs> well, well, I'm so uh, so happy, Miss Sanders. She's being very modest. She's one of the most remarkable uh, broadcast professionals and media professionals, and even more broader than that, is an entrepreneur and an engaged citizen. So I'm deeply and profoundly grateful to you for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule. Plus, you're a mama of uh, three wonderful boys. I believe that's right. And uh, you are doing an extraordinary job. So we are so honored and grateful to have you here tonight. Well, the connection is here and I'm so pleased. So let's just start things off because uh, people will likely be logging on and viewing from all around. Let's just lay just a little bit of groundwork about you and your inspiration for this body, really this life's work of written as well as oratorical work that you've laid before our feet and in our echo speakers, everybody who's saying, Alexa, play the next page. You're entertaining as we talk about entertaining. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, I have been obsessed with trying to be as clear as possible about the conditions and circumstances that people of color face, Black people in particular face in this country, and what the barriers and obstacles are that prevent our flourishing, and what roads and paths we can pursue in order to realize our noble ambitions, to not only realize our progress as a people, but to make this country a better place at the same time. Indeed, indeed. And you have been compared to Jay-Z, LeBron, Tom (laughs) Brady, out in the pocket doing his thing, (laughs) as you have really been able to uh, sustain really a high level of outstanding output while being quite active outside of your field of academic play. You're an activist, 
a media personality, commentator, preacher, writer, extraordinaire, never mind that you are, of course, counsel. I, I can imagine to so many people that your phone is blowing up at all times. You're a <laughs> husband, a father, and a friend to so many. And I know those frequent flyer miles are off the chain. So here's what I want to know. First of all, does a brother sleep? And what is your central driving force, though, the central factor? Because most people who are this passionate and can perform on this level, they have a why, you know? So what is your why? Mm, that's so powerful. Thank you for your kind words, by the way. Yeah, you know, when I got a PhD, I had already been a teen father, hustled on the streets, lived in Detroit on welfare, <clears throat> worked at my father's alma mater, the Kelsey Hayes Wheel Breaking Drum Company, and did a bunch of odd jobs. So by the time I went to college at 21, I knew I was serious about getting my education. And when I went to graduate school, I didn't go to graduate school to impress some other people and to impress other scholars, like as some of us may do, or to write primarily for them. I wanted to write for the people, to raise high the bloodstained banner of truth and the quest for democracy and justice for our people. And so I was clear on that. So what drives me is the desire to bear witness as intelligently and as sharply and as insightfully as I can um, to the powerful resources that our ancestors have bequeathed us, but also to create new ways of imagining and reimagining social justice for us in the 21st century. So I wanted to use everything at my disposal, the written word, the spoken word, uh, sermons, essays, uh, book reviews, op-eds, uh, commencement speeches, and uh, you know, protest speeches, lectures, all the stuff that's in this book to focus on this magnificent obsession, which is how to appropriately and effectively bear witness uh, to ideals and truths that I know will be Sideswipe will be marginalized, will be attacked and assaulted as they have been throughout my career. But nonetheless, knowing that people died, uh, people sacrificed blood and body and sinew and flesh uh, for the progress of our people, I can do nothing but give as much time and energy as possible to creating better ways of thinking and being and of realizing our goals and our destiny in this country. Okay. And you did all that plus write 500 more pages in this, this book though, it's kind of a compilation as well. Um, and mm -hmm. you have just given us a nice list of various ways that you express yourself and reduce things to writing and quantify. So, but let's go ahead and talk about, this is the 24th for those of you who are just meeting Dr. Dyson. This is book number 24. So you got some catching up to do. Um, this book, Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America, like the skilled orator that you are. And I think, you know, you were a rapper in another life because <clears throat> you got your rapper skill set, which clearly shines through. So I see that double entendre clearly speaking to black people as entertainers, which in and of itself comes with a mighty list of conflictual dynamics of pride and trepidation. And right, then right. it's black people as entertainment, as I want to say, managers of sorts having to manage the notion and realities of race, the dynamic of race, which plays out very often as a burdensome, I like to say duality, that role-playing, the code switching, 
that black people are called to do, right? That's right, it. Right. We've got to kind of perform that. So right. what? how would you speak to the meaning of the title? Yes, ma'am. No, that's uh, brilliantly laid out by you. And, you know, those double entendres, those triple entendres, heck, those quadruple entendres. And we have to constantly pivot among and between competing ways and centers of being, of, of energy, of reflection, of commitment, of, you know, ideals and goals. We have to constantly uh, reflect on what we're about and what we're trying to do. And we're constantly translating, you know, who we are. Yes, performing at many levels. Um, Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and we're all players on it. Well, that's true, too. But it also means that blackness is constantly being performed and not just by Beyonce and Jay-Z and Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and the great Aretha Franklin. It's being performed by ordinary, everyday black people in both the exceptional realm that I just named on stage, but also in life, in corporate America, at their jobs, um, in, in places and spaces where they're asked about their hair. Uh, or their clothing, or their choice of vocation, and uh, or mates. So there's a constant, relentless interrogation of blackness uh, being pr- executed, prosecuted uh, by ordinary citizens and by the powers that be. And so we are constantly giving account of ourselves in the performative character. And I know for young people, performative means something like you fake it like performative allyship. You're just presenting in public a performance of something that you deny the legitimacy of. But see, I think performance has a much more profound impact and we perform in edifying and uplifting ways, not just in fake and um, inauthentic ways. Martin Luther King Jr. was performing when he found a way to bring the barbarism of Bull Connor the commissioner of public safety, the sheriff in Birmingham uh, to the stage that King would construct of social activism and resistance. So when he unleashed, that is he being Bull Connor, the fire hoses and the police dogs upon the flesh of black men and women and children, the bicuspids and incisors of police dogs ripping into their flesh or nipping at them or the water hoses washing them against the, the wall. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, was really recruiting Bull Connor to participate in a pageantry of black social redemption by forcing America during its dinner time, while it's watching the evening news, looking at Walter Cronkite to see what's on the concrete and its black bodies and faces and places and children being manhandled and mistreated. That was a performance of sorts. When John Lewis is on the bridge trying to get to the other side, trying to get across that Edmund Pettus Bridge and to to argue for black voting, that is performance. Ella Baker, Joanne Robinson, Fannie Lou Hamer, Septima Clark, Diane Nash, and on and on and on. So I think that performance has a redemptive character within black America and not just in the famous people and the exceptional people, but the ordinary everyday people. Black Lives Matter is a performance. Uh, Naomi Osaka is performing on the tennis court, but when she refuses to perform in deference to her own mental health, that's a greater performance of Black self-care in an era when Black people are demanded to perform. And going back 
to the time when that slave girl that I began the book with was hung upside down by her one ankle with a lawn cloth barely covering her midriff, beat to death at 15 because she refused to perform. That's the struggle we've been having from the very beginning. And black people are constantly, relentlessly negotiating that demand with the performance of our profound intelligence and humanity. Um, you know, it, it made me think right away when I read the, the title um, and just you always want to um, thread this through your personal experience. And, you know, Coney Gardens here in Detroit is a historically very stable working class black neighborhood. And I have my own concept of entertaining reflections. It seems that entertainment, though, and I want your reflection, holds its value, as you say, it can be redemptive when we own it. When we own it, okay, when we dance for our own selves, not under the exploitive, uninitiated eye of others. So it's the mm. same dance, but it's a different effect, right? That's right. So That's it right. brings to mind for me a clear directive. I can remember my mother and grandmother standing on the porch, looking out the door saying, hey, hey, we, we don't dance outside on the street like that. Because it just it's inevitable when the girlfriends got together, we kickball, we do hide and seek, but eventually... We're going to try to do a dance. Who's Who knows how to do the new breakdown? And my grandmother and my mother would always say, no, no, we don't dance. Later, I would understand was because that might be showing that we were uncouth in some way. And, and, and there was a dynamic of not dancing also when others outside of our race were present. You mm -hmm. don't dance when other people can see you and they're not from your community. Because That's again, right. it's as if you're the entertainment. And right. the family wants more for you. So, hey, hey, my mother was like, uh, uh, we, we, don't, we don't dance now. <laughs> so, she would let us know right away. So I'm just wondering your reflections. Does that fit into the sphere? Because at some point, though, it must be that this performance is something that is self-actualizing for ourselves or beneficial in some way. Right. No, you're so brilliant. So brilliant. This is why we wanted to the great Ms. Lauren Sanders on here tonight. You, 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 you've deconstructed that brilliantly because the competing forces are the internal drive and compulsion to be creative in the midst of horror and tragedy and trauma and terror, to create stable rituals of sustenance, ways in which Black people can maintain and preserve a sense of progress, of stability, of the capacity to endure uh, the traumas that are imposed upon us arbitrarily, but also our will to act as agents of our destiny uh, in a society that refuses to acknowledge our humanity. So we got that. So that every performance is not merely reactionary against the demand or uh, in response to the demand of white supremacy for you Negroes to dance, as they did on slave ships, dance the captives. Because they danced the captives to keep them in shape, uh, to keep them active, to entertain and titillate uh, the non-black men, mostly on board, um, and to make sure that their property uh, was not going to waste. But on the other hand, you know, so so we wanted to create our own dimensions, even before we were enslaved in African civilizations and native haunts, we were dancing for a variety of reasons. We were singing for a variety of reasons. We didn't have to worry about responding to European colonization or the fetishization of dark skin as the projection of sexual desire of the other for black bodies. 
But your grandmama understood. No, no, no. We ain't going to be out here performing no blackface and no minstrel and putting on no performance that white folks think that's all the Negroes do. Uh, No, we're not going to have that. Now, we know that there's a tremendously fertile debate in black communities about the politics of respectability. So we shouldn't be obsessed with what white folk think of us. If we have the freedom to exercise agency, we should be able to dance and sing and do what we want. Fine. But the truth is that we're being judged. We're being seen through a prism that is a distorted prism. And at the same time, um, here we are engaged in practices that are being narrowly you know, construed by the dominant culture and sing us a song, dance for us, perform for us, Negroes, in response to, you know, what has genetically been encoded in the collective unconscious of white folk. And some black folk like your grandma, we ain't down with that. We ain't trying to give no free performances. They ain't paying no money. And we're not trying to fulfill a stereotype of the natural capacity of the Negro because because that dishonors the hard work that we have to do. That would be like saying, you know, Lauren Sanders is one of the greatest journalists and media specialists we have. Uh, look at how crisp and articulate her words are. She, I mean, she's got that, but she had to practice. She had to study. She had to be smooth. She had to learn how to read a teleprompter. She had to learn how to improvise. That ain't, that's some hard work up in there. And the ethics of journalism and deconstructing mythologies of objectivity and neutrality. That's hard work. So don't dishonor black performance by saying every Negro can dance because for every black person that can, we know 20 that can't, right? And for everyone that can do sports, we know 50 who can't. So let's not deny the legitimacy of our genius and what we manifest on fields of play or on stages of, of performance by just suggesting that, oh, that's such a natural thing that black people do. No, it ain't. Now, we got good at what we were demanded to do. Hortense Spillers, the great <clears throat> feminist critic, says, and cultural critic, look, that's what the reason they didn't ask us to uh, parse the language of modernist poetry. They didn't ask us to deconstruct Nietzsche. They asked us to dance and perform and do physical stuff with our bodies. So we got good at what the demands were because we're trying to survive. So it was out of that culture, plus whatever, quote, natural instincts we had toward performativity. Uh, to account for uh, the practices of Black folk at any particular moment, culturally and artistically. Well, let's talk again about um, some more specifics here, because I tell you one thing that really struck me was the depth and breadth and the scope. I mean, uh, you this book, um, folks who are watching, listening, um, this book will take you on an enjoyable, like analytical journey, like, like a snapshot of so many parts of America and with the black folks in it. Um, it it's truly remarkable in the range of topics that you take on music. I mean, if I go through this list, music, photography, plays, films, religious essays, sermons, mm-hmm. eulogies, you talk about basketball, politics, yes. cultural criticism, lectures, speeches, dialogues, debates, public addresses, protest speeches, op-eds, commencement addresses, and so much more. I mean, that right there is amazing right. to have that that range. 
and to be able to speak with a level of depth and analytical thought. So from what would you say you derive your ability really to shape critical analysis really on such a wide range, specifically in this book, you go from King to Kobe, Beyonce <laughs> to Amiri Baraka, from August Wilson to George Floyd. I mean, like I said earlier, do you sleep? <laughs> Bless you for that. And thank you for reading so thoroughly and understanding the scope, uh, the design, the progress of thought, the evolution of consciousness that hopefully is betokened in this book. Um, because look, I'm old school black intellectual. I'm old school intellectual. I'm old school American scholar. I'm interested in a set of questions and they take me across a number of uh, axes, of genres, of fields of study. Anthropology, ethnography is a subsection. Uh, sociology, sociology of knowledge, um, metaphysics, philosophical thought, and so on. So I'm just trying to figure out questions. What's true? What's fact? What's real? What's possible? What can we do? How can we engage? What do we talk about when we talk about blackness? What is American democracy? So I have to study political theory. I give commencement addresses. I give uh, lectures. I give orations. I give you know, uh, protest speeches. I study widely and broadly scientific discourse, the rigors of uh, the social sciences and so on and so forth, because I am curious about the way the world operates and trying to figure out how we continue uh, to negotiate and engage uh, our ideas as human beings and how we apply that uh, to the worlds in which we live. So, yeah, I'm interested in Kobe. I'm interested in Barack. I'm interested in basketball. I'm interested in football, sport. I'm interested in a whole range of ideas that constitute the performance field of Blackness and as broad a variety of insight as can be marshaled in order to understand this undeniably complex phenomenon we call Blackness. Okay. Well, I think that when we have such an expert as yourself here, we should take the opportunity to tap into your depth, your reservoir mm. of information. And it's a popular <laughs> hot topic right now circulating. And right. race and entertaining race is certainly a polarizing topic right away. But we need look no further than the well-crafted alarm bells that are being set off about mm. critical race theory. Right, right. So you include in this book yeah. a keynote address you gave at Howard University's Law School on critical race theory way before it was popular, way mm. to talk about openly, way before it was controversial. And it looks like this will be gaining steam as a topic that will be building a momentum on the campaign trail, a strategic mm -hmm. hot button issue. It is worth talking about right here. So first, let us define for everyone who has no real concept or they are getting their mm -hmm. concepts from fly by night, you know, television shows and sound bites. Let's talk about, right. let's define critical race theory. Just help us understand. And how is it being misinterpreted? Yes, ma'am. Well, no, it's a great point you're making. Um, you know, there were some uh, Jewish intellectuals in Germany, part of the Frankfurt Germany school, Frankfurt school, right? They, they, they came to be known as the Frankfurt school, like University of Chicago, sociologist Robert Park and others, the Chicago school, because it was at the University of Chicago in the city of Chicago, Frankfurt in Frankfurt, Germany at the Frankfurt Institute. So the Frankfurt school, and they had people like Max Horkheimer, Herbert Marcuse, Marcuse 
and others immigrated from Germany to America and other places because they were they were trying to avoid Hitler's Germany, the rise of fascism and anti-Semitism. Many of these scholars, these Jewish scholars, went to teach at historically black colleges and universities. And isn't it interesting? And other universities where black students had access to them. Herbert Marcuse was the professor at, I think it was University of California, San Diego, or one of those institutions in California of Angela Davis. So Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse, Angela Davis, Frankfurt School, critical theory. And as Max Horkheimer said, the word critical and critical theory means coming up with a theory that could deal with a critical analysis. What do you mean by critical? Studying those things that enslave us and therefore liberating us from the impediments that enslave us. That's what he meant by critical. Who's against that? Who's against trying to figure out the elements that enslave us and how we can be emancipated from them? So from critical theory came critical legal studies, and from that critical race theory, because the black scholars said, let's put a little, let's put a little spin on this. It's good you're dealing with the ways in which jurisprudence and the rationality of the courts is operating and legal theory, but let's apply this to black theories and reflections on legal um, theory and truths. So critical race theory is something for law schools. That's what they, that's what they founded it. That's where they generated it. Kimberly Crenshaw, Derek Bell, Charles Lawrence, Marie Matsuda, and all this in the 70s and 80s. And so it was a legal theory about how we got to deal with not only individuals, but institutions. Not only sentiments and passions, I hate you, you're black, I don't like you, but also structures and systems so that even when you got nice people, like, I like you black people, but the inequity of a school system is self-perpetuating. It doesn't demand an individual bigot to perpetuate a legacy of inequity because of the structural inequalities that prevail. So that's what critical race theory is trying to do is like, let's figure out ways in which we can talk about these big problems, these big obstacles, these big structures that are almost damn near self-perpetuating. Now, how we go from that to what we mean by critical race theory today, because a young white boy named Christopher Rufo was studying all this anti-racist literature, not for purposes of informing himself, but by looking at how he could attack it. And he found that many of them were referring to critical race theory in their anti-racist literature. It's not that they were bound by that or united by that or even unified by that. So he said, this is going to be a good thing to galvanize the right wing and to spook white parents to believe that their children are being taught to hate them or hate themselves and the like. So to end all this by saying critical race theory is a way of understanding legally how society is not simply motivated by individual bigots, but by institutional and structural forces that have to be grappled with 
And this notion that critical race theory is going to destroy white kids and is being taught in high school, it ain't it ain't being taught in all law schools. Darn show sure not in high school. So let's stop the madness and get to the truth of what's going on. Right wingers and conservative elements, far right elements in this country want to use any race baiting uh, philosophy or theory in order to scare white people into believing that the real enemy is critical race theory and not straight up white supremacy. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you. That that was very thorough. And I, I did, um, in reading your book, get that understanding. And Derek Bell, I was first exposed to that Harvard Law professor when I was um, at University of Michigan. But the concept, though, mm-hmm. is being reduced to um, yeah, moms who are coming out saying that we are opposed to separation of children for the demonstration uh, of something having to do with critical race theory. But in fact, I, I just had to apply common sense and say, if we're teaching a theory, is this right. not the teacher's misstep in that they have uh, decided to adopt a misguided approach? I mean, did somebody give you a template of material and say, hey. this is the way that we teach it? Or was that you with a harebrained approach that mm-hmm. that's causing the trauma? And though the concept of trauma, because I've seen and everyone else probably in your, your hearing what the objections are, is mm-hmm. that the, the white children are being made to feel guilty and that this is traumatizing. But what I'm hearing is it could be an opportunity for development of empathy and understanding. So in fact, maybe when you are forced into some emotional reaction, maybe we are building a new generation of people who care. Right. How about that? How about that? As opposed to forcing kids to uh, feel bad about themselves or guilt. We ain't interested in guilt. We ain't interested in bad feeling. We're interested in the performance of a humanity. If young black kids are not too young to be victims of racism, young white kids ain't too young to know what it is. Yes. And if we're teaching facts, we're not teaching, we're teaching just, we just want, let's just tell what. Right. How about that? Are you too young for the Supreme court? How about the constitution? How about the declaration of independence? How about civics? My God, but you ain't too young for the Confederate. You ain't too young for that, huh? Come on, man. Come on, like they say on Monday Night Football. Come on, man. Now, okay, so let's go to one of your, I can tell, one of your favorite topics. And that's because, you know, that's that Detroit Roots soul, the music, okay? Let's talk Uh, about Jay-Z. Let's talk about, um, Mm -hmm. it's a hard knock life, don't make me sing. LL Cool J, they obviously, uh, this is really exciting for them. They were just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Two very Mm -hmm. different artists, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. But I know you played a special role. You were invited to be involved during Jay-Z's induction. Um, And I really, though, it made me think, I know that there's a thought and a principle in the Black community of not looking for affirmation outside of our own. But I am wondering how you feel that our Black history in entertainment really comes to bear on this moment. Yeah, no, it's a great point. It's a great distinction you make. And it is, look, we have to be careful. Of course, we don't want to depend upon white validation as a means of black self-expression. That's true. But everybody like be like, and people like what you're doing. And as Dr. King said, vitamin A to the ego. <laughs> so, you know, everybody want to be loved and said it's good. And you're doing all right. Uh, but we don't want to be victims mm-hmm. of obsessively and slavishly uh, being obsequious and deferring to people just out of desperate desires 
to want to be light. So no, of course. Um, but it is important to, you know, have people understand what you're trying to do. And the interesting thing about hip hop is that unlike earlier generations that said, well, we're going to cross over to the dominant mainstream and, you know, make them understand our humanity. That was good. Hip hop was like, look, we ain't going nowhere. You look, this is what we do. This is how we be talking. This is what we be saying. If you dig it, come on over. Oh, guess what? Your kids love it. They love what we doing, you know? So LL Cool J and, and, and um, Jay-Z being inducted into the Hall of Fame is beautiful. And I like that, that duality because, you know, LL doesn't often get the kind of recognition he deserves because he ain't cussing a whole bunch. And he's talking about loving the ladies. You know, I need love. You made the first hip hop love song. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years rocking my pen. You know, he's looked to do battle rap. Uh, the around the way girl showing love to the ladies sex symbol up in hip hop. Then you got Jay-Z speaking about the hustling life. God forgive me for my brash delivery, but I remember vividly what these streets did to me. Imagine me allowing you to nitpick at me, portray me like a pickany, condensing the word pickaninny. Or all my teachers couldn't reach me and my mama couldn't beat me hard enough to match the pain of my pop not seeing me so with that disdain in my membrane, got him on pimp game blank, the world, my defense came. So, you know, you got a guy, look, I would write it if y'all could get it, but being intricate will get you wood critic on the internet. They're like, you should spit it. I'm like, you should buy it. That's good business. <laughs> so the thing is, is that that rhetorical ferocity, the master, the flu mastery, the fluidity, the poetic invention of a Jay-Z or a, of a LL Cool J is certainly to be celebrated. And let us note, although you're a young lady, I'm older than you by far, that when I was coming up, you know, not as a young man, but as a younger man in my 20s, and I'm listening to the R&B station, we played no heavy backbeat. <laughs> they, were, they were promoting the fact, in other words, we ain't playing on that hippity hippity hop hop stuff because as we were developing, a lot of black people were ashamed, uh, turned off by, didn't want to hear uh, hip hop. Now, some of that had to do with the sexism and misogyny, but even before then, right? Uh, they were like, turn that trash off. That ain't real music and so on. And now here we are, the most hip hop is the most successful music, the most popular music in the world, having surpassed a couple years ago, country music. Now- that's, that's saying a lot, but anyway. That is saying a lot. And I think some of that is because of this, its authenticity. That that would be a word I would kind of reduce things to. And right. I, I just want to share that it seems to me, um, as I listen deeply to your analysis about the artists and then their, their craft, um, that your mm -hmm. treatment of music and the artists that created, mm -hmm. that what you speak about in the book is like you've laid out to provide this necessary perspective as mm -hmm. almost a manual of sorts on how these artists and their craft ought to be viewed considering right. they and their crafts are often relegated to the B minus pile because right. their craft is often not born out of, let's just call it convention. So this, right. this seemed to me like useful information for people who don't know, or they don't have an appreciation for already these artists almost by default. So it's like you're helping them to quantify and define 
for the onlookers exactly what they are onlooking. It reminded me of the great phenomenon of the early lack of respect for improvisation and jazz. Mm. In fact, jazz improvisation is knowing the rules so well that you can break the rules. So, mm. but 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 in the beginning, that that was seen as that's the junkyard music. No one's respecting that because you're not, you know, keystroking it out exactly the way you know someone else has written. You making up your own right. lines, and so to, it reminded me of you helping others to understand this is the position that this music holds. If you don't know it, now you know. Right? <laughs> if you don't know, now you know. That's so brilliantly articulated. The parallels between improvisation, you know, uh, and, and how it was seen as somehow departing from the canons of European music. Thomas Jefferson is writing him notes on Virginia you know, Negroes have some, you know, creativity in the music, but, you know, I doubt whether they'll be able to develop harmonically. Ha! Guess you didn't hear the Supremes, did you, homeboy? So the thing is, is that they were skeptical about the moral utility and the rationality that informed the artistic expressions of Black people, and therefore thought we were crude and reductionistic and, and animalistic and savage, uh, and as you said, the improvisation was seen as a radical departure from the written notes, and therefore you must be inferior and ignorant because you can't read them. Well, some people weren't taught to read because you kept us from reading both the, the words in a book and notes. So we did something in jeans. We came up with our own. When you go into the studio with Miles Davis and John Coltrane, 1959, uh, Cannonball Adderley, who was on the piano? Was it Bill Evans? And who's on the drums? Philly Joe Jones or somebody on the drums? McCoy Tyner on the piano too. And then they, they got chords sketched out. They know where they're going to go, but they don't know how they're going to get there. They don't know what it's going to sound like in the interim. So that's why they started. Da, 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 all right, we got that down. But that's what on as the quote spirit moves them. And they begin to play around those notes and play around with those notes. So your point is brilliant in terms of the parallel between improvisation and what was going on in hip hop. And and dig it. Uh Louis Armstrong and the old school swing uh didn't dig Bebop when Bebop came along. So that when Charlie Parker and them was coming out, were coming along, right? So Bebop itself was seen as no Louis Armstrong. I don't even really dig that. Leave that alone. I'm not. I'm not feeling that. And then the younger cats, the younger Turks, come along and they ringing changes on the music. Charlie Parker. Then later on, of course, Coltrane and the like. So each generation embodying its ethic of artistic uh, expression and protocol. But as you said, they were seen as barbaric and savage by the dominant European culture and hip hop. Well, you ain't reading. Well, Homer could neither read nor write, but ain't nobody going to call him illiterate. Ain't nobody going to call the Iliad a work that's jacked up. Ain't nobody going to call one of the great works of oral artistry in the Western world, the mark of savage uh, sensibility or inferior intelligence. So Jay-Z doesn't even write it down, not even writing it down, you know, 
Ben Laden been happening in Manhattan. Back when, back then, the police was Al-Qaeda the black man. What? You know, Tupac, somebody wake me, I'm dreaming. I started as a seed, the semen, swimming upstream, planted in the womb while screaming. On the top was my pops, my mama hollering, stop from a single drop. This is what they got? Not to disrespect my people, but my papa was a loser. Only plan he had for mama was the blanker and abuser. And even as a seed, I could see his plan for me stranded on welfare, another broken family. I mean, you know, think about Rakim, standing by the speaker. Suddenly I heard it, had a fever. Wasn't me or either. Summer madness. Because I just can't stand around. So I get closer and the closer I get, the better it sounds. My mind starts to activate. Rhymes collaborate. Because when I heard the beat, I just had to make something from the top of my head. So I fell into the groove of the wax and I said, how can I move the crowd first of all? Ain't no mistakes allowed. So yeah, our kids are genius on genius with improvisation and generating uh, the beauty uh, of the freestyle into an art form that has taken the world by storm. Amazing. And while all of that genius exists, we still find the naysayer. So I'm going to go to a naysayer. We don't want to run out of time and we will be fielding questions from some. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Right. But I wanted to see if we have enough time to get to this interesting exchange that you had. Now, it happened some years ago, but people are really buzzing about this. Um, And it is really true, the dialogue and words, and which is why we're here. And Commonwealth Club is doing a great thing in terms Mm -hmm. of the share of information. Words can help to elevate us. We know words help to define us. It can help to change behavior. So the monk debates in Canada found you on stage on a verbal throwdown with Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. During this debate, Peterson made some pretty emotionally tinged comments. One about how would we tax him for his white privilege, which I heard as if to say, if there is a difficulty in quantifying white advantage and a difficulty in quantifying black disadvantage, then somehow that nullifies the harm. So if you can't put a number on it, then it must not exist. So it was some dynamics going on between the two of you. And I wondered if you could give us your take. Yes, ma'am. You should, you know, it's like you were a fly on the wall and right there. And I was like, yo, bro, right. It, 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 you know, it, it, as you brilliantly put it, just because you can't quantify it in your own calculus, in your own physiognomy of ferocity, that, that we can't somehow measure the trauma in terms of decibels and uh, in terms of algorithms, that somehow the harm ain't real. Well, you might not could say, you might have a disease you don't know the origin of. It's, an, as they say in medical practice, an unknown etiology. So scientifically, you don't have the descriptive power to name uh, that thing which can destroy you, but it can still kill you. Just because you ain't got no word for it, just because you don't know what it is, don't mean it can't kill you. And so, yeah, of course, that's, as the great philosopher Mike Tyson would say, ludicrous. It's ludicrous, right, <laughs> to say that. And then we got into a debate. This dude was talking about, you know, I, I find a lot of these right wingers and these conservative ideologues, and he claims he's neither, but clearly his his theories benefit the conservatives and the arch right wing and the reactionaries. You know, they're using words like it's postmodern, by which he meant, I assume, that we have no, you know, anchor in truth, a truth that is unyielding, a truth that is true for all time. You know, they're true today, true tomorrow, like you God. You ain't God, homie. So stuff gonna change. And <clears throat> but I teach postmodernity. I was asked, what you talking about? Are you talking about Jacques Derrida? 
with his notion of deconstruction? Are you speaking about, uh, you know, Michel Foucault with what he called the insurrection of subjugated knowledges? What are you talking about, Baudrillard? Baudrillard with the simulacrum that is generated in a postmodern context? Are you talking about postmodernity as a time period or postmodernity as a thematic preoccupation? Are you talking about destabilizing modernist narratives at the behest of a, you know, uh, an exploding corpus of ideas and beliefs? What you be meaning, homie? So if you ain't got no clear definition of that and you just tossing these words around without defining them, it sounds kind of cray-cray to me. And so at one point I did call him a mean, mad white man. Because <laughs> I'm like, where's the why's, what's the anger? It's like the, you like to you like the mad rapper. Tell him why you mad, son. Tell him why you mad. So those things are part and parcel of what was going on there. And uh, it was a heck of a debate and uh, some interesting uh, fireworks and dialogue were, were occurring. And it's really difficult um, when it, it feels as if you have to convince others of what should be, you would hope to be super obvious um, when you look at right. some basic facts and statistics. Um, and I think, you know, fundamentally, the concept of moving us toward the ideals that we have espoused, um, right. our definition of who we are as Americans, clearly we've run afoul of some of that. And right. it's difficult uh, to listen to those who seem to still need to be convinced. But if they need numbers, you know, we're going to get the number crunches for you. <laughs> right, yes. right. No, you're right. I mean, and... We have a few questions, Dr. Dyson, and I want to... Okay, I just want to say, you know, like when the Bible says, those who come to God must believe God is, because if you already, all, you know, don't believe, then they, you're not going to have a certain predisposition to actually believe. Now, those who are agnostic or atheists have a right to say, that's bull crap, I don't believe that but at least understand that you got to invest in the process of belief itself in order for it to become meaningful. But anyway, let's, uh, yeah, let's tackle some of those questions, ma'am. Some of those, uh, uh, some of that analysis that you went through, that was a chapter that I would tell you, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, be ready. <laughs> Thank you. You, 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 you read it tight now. You read it tight. I appreciate it. I mean, my, well, my head was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get through. But, but okay, let, let's I go to some of the um, questions that we have here. Uh, for our first question, how can we tell the difference, they ask, between profound, performative, um, against detrimental types of performativity? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I don't think we can necessarily always know it in advance. Sometimes you can if people just faking the funk. They you know, I had no real interest in this, but shoot, this was hip right now. Everybody's posting on Instagram. Let me go and post on Instagram too. All right. But a lot of people post on Instagram could have been real. It could have been serious about it. We don't know. So it could be performativity, but also deeply rooted in traditions of honest response to problems. So they could be both. <clears throat> they could understand the performative character of allyship because we do need symbols and, you know, representations of what we're aiming for. And so there could be some ham involved, some performativity. You know, when Dr. King is delivering the I Have a Dream speech, you don't think that's, I mean, that, that's performance? You know, he could have said five score years ago, great American whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. What did he say? Five score years ago, well, great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed signed he struck it out like drug it out like melisma like 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 sam cook yoda 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. So he struck it out. Signed the Emancipation Proclamation. You don't think Malcolm X was performing? Look at him. You've been hoodwinked. You've been bamboozled, right? That's performance at its height. Preachers, speakers, thinkers, dramatizing events. Martin Luther King Jr. dramatized. He said, we must dramatize the the inequities that prevail. So yes, um, sometimes we can tell by the consequence what the real is from the fake. Sometimes we can tell by the intent originally. And sometimes they're mixed up because sometimes you start with one direction and end up in another. You know, you might see if you happen to be a heterosexual male and you see a beautiful woman going to church, you follow her to church. Then you get there and find out, oh, Jesus there too? Oh, dang. That's that, What a bonus. What, what, what a bonus. <laughs> what a bonus. So <laughs> don't hold that against me, y'all. So the thing is, is that there are multiple reasons to motivate a human being, but multiple outcomes as well. Okay. Okay. And we have another question that has come in, which asks, which academic disciplines outside of your specializations have been the most influential towards uncovering new insights that might lead, say, to a new book idea? Ah, that's a great question. Um, So, you know, probably literary theory, social theory, anthropological stuff, especially, you know, um, doing doing a kind of ethnography. Uh, What did you say? I'm sorry. What did you say? Um, Epigenetics, something that. Yeah. Epigenetics, epigenetics, extremely important and understand the transmission of trauma over space and time. So I'm an amateur on all these things, trying to learn something, trying to figure it out, but trying to use vocabularies, uh, grammars, and insight to try to understand what's going on. So those are some of those. And pop culture and cultural theories and studies are extremely important as well. Um, I think we have time for um, one or two more questions. Okay. Another question has come in. What story or person did not make it into the book that you really wanted to include? Ha! That's a great question, actually. I had to cut like five chapters, man. I had to cut, cut a couple sermons. I was like, man, I had to cut a couple sermons, a couple interviews that I was doing. I ain't going to tell you what they are, so they're going to show up in a new book. They're going to show up in a future book. (laughs) So, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, about five chapters that I had. And that's just from what the final list was. Before then, I had about 80 chapters. Had to cut it down to 75. Then the 70, how many made it now? I don't know. Is it 50, 60, 50, uh, 50 chapters now? So, yeah, I did. I did some cutting now. That's a great, great question. Uh, and and uh, hopefully they'll be useful to me uh, in future projects. Okay, very good. Um, we know you have a, a building and growing archive. <laughs> so um, we expect that more will be coming your way. The next question, what is your opinion on HBO's show Insecure? Issa Rae using AKA or Alpha Kappa Alpha to promote an image of their character and turning a very real experience into something that can be adopted by a character to entertain. You know, that was kind of buzzing around as there are a lot of people who thought that was controversial. Yeah, I'm, I know I'm going to be politically incorrect, and the AK is probably going to be mad at me and, you know, the Deltas, but, you know, they be throwing up them gang signs. Here's to the rock. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just joking. I'm just joking, y'all. I'm just joking. Look, are we taking it that seriously that we can't even have it as an artifact of 
consciousness by a black female creator educating the world, entertaining the world, elucidating and illuminating the cultural context of black people. Look at Spike Lee, who did School Days. He had the Jigaboos and the Wannabes. My God, the whole film was built around the rituals of black public, of, of, of uh, uh, historically black colleges and universities. Now, you know, Issa Rae doing a real one is even more realistic, is more provocative, makes people think about what they're doing when they join sororities or fraternities. So I think she's an amazing woman. I think she's very creative. And I think that was uh, quite provocative and a necessary step to try to jog us out of a, a kind of proprietary regard for our own culture and to see it through the irreverence that would yield a kind of insight that we wouldn't gain if we're being so proper about it. And I think we need to be pushed ourselves every night again in that regard. Uh, we have another question. What are your thoughts about the NBA walkout that followed the shooting of Jacob Blake? Do you think it was effective? Absolutely. I mean, people talking about it. I know some of the players are like, let's just not play at all. Dude, if you ain't playing, they ain't paying attention. You know what I'm saying? Michael Jordan, I'm going to play. I'm going to play. I'm going to be interested in uh, politics after I'm done. They don't care, bruh. When you ain't chucking that ball and throwing that rock and running that pigskin, they don't care as much. It ain't the same when you're at the height. This is why I got mad respect for LeBron James. While he is playing, he got mad, mad respect for the game. He takes care of his body, 38 years old, 37, 38, whatever. He's about to turn 38, I think, soon in December. Uh, all that, and at the same time, Dropping mad science, clowning Kyle Rittenhouse for his crocodile tears, speaking up for Colin Kaepernick, uh, talking about I'm not just going to dribble, shut up and dribble. Right now, Black Lives Matter, I can't breathe, raising consciousness, uh, funneling money toward the funding of voter rights campaigns among African-American people, right while he is most popular. Mad love and respect to that brother right there. So I think it's extremely important what they did was valuable and effective. Okay. Um, we have another question. What was your reaction to the defense attorney in the case against the murders of Ahmaud Arbery saying that he did not want black pastors in the courtroom? I'm sure you know of that. Do you think it speaks to the way white people view Reverend Al Sharpton? Reverend Jesse Jackson and others. It speaks of how they, you know, look at black people, no matter if they got a reverend behind their name, you just another man. Don't make me say it. So look, these are respectable men, friends of mine. I got chapters on both of them in the book. So if you want to read about what I think about them, check out the book on Reverend Al Sharpton and on Reverend Jesse Jackson. They are iconic figures, historic, legendary, have done so much for black people in this nation. And now you're going to tell them they can't come to the daggum courtroom. You just trying to tell us the very sight of a black person. Why are you so fragile? You be talking about black people as snowflakes. You talk about black people as weak, as woke, as can't take nothing. And yet the moment something doesn't go your way, you just tripping out all over. And I'm talking about you. If it don't fit you, don't take it. I'm talking about the very narrow consideration of certain white folk who are hypersensitive about these issues and trying to make 
a literally federal case out of it. It's ludicrous, that argument. He's a, they are citizens of the United States of America. They have a right to be present and accounted for. And I hope not only 100 ministers show up on Thursday, I hope 1,000 show up. That's my tribe. That's my, that's my fraternity, the black preachers. I've been doing it for over 40 years. So when you talk about them, you're talking about me. So show up, brothers and sisters. Let's show them what we do. Well, um, I think we are just about out of time as we talked um, this evening. This has been a thrill for me. And I really want to thank you so much for joining the Commonwealth Club. Um, this has just been fascinating. Uh, there were a couple, there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, we didn't even get to talk about, you know, Six Mile and Livernois. Come on, come on, man. White Castle, we ain't talking about, you know, what's going on in the D. Yeah, so yes, ma'am. Next time, next time. Thank you so much for your brilliance and insight and your radiance and your tremendous facilitation of this conversation and taking the time away from your busy schedule and your family to do this. Thank you so very kindly. And I thank you. I would love to do it again. And I want to thank you for joining the Commonwealth Club today and discussing a mere snippet of this fantastic new 24th book from uh, Michael Eric Dyson. If you haven't read it, you will not be disappointed. You will be taken on a word roller coaster of depth and breadth. You will learn key nuances of the Black experience and critical viewpoints on and from the Black experience. We'd also like to thank you, of course, our audience members for watching and participating live. And thank you to our bookstore partner. That would be Marcus Books in Oakland. We That's my people, Marcus Books. Go, go buy some books from them. Come on, Oakland. I'm coming on out there. Uh, we encourage you, of course, to pick up your copy of Dr. Dyson's latest book. It is holiday gift giving time and it will make a fantastic stocking stuffer, as they say. Mm -hmm. um, I would like um, if you, of course, would like to watch more and if you would like to support more of these online programs, because it's fascinating that we can you can be there and I can be here and you all can be there. And we can come together for this information share. And if you would like to continue to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming possible, please visit their website. It's commonwealthclub.org forward slash online. I'm Lauren Sanders, and thank you so much for your time. This has been a thrill. Take care, and thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.